I hope you have been enjoying our sermon series in the book of Colossians titled Walking in Faithfulness. Remember, Paul is addressing our tendency to look to things in this world to find fullness in life. But he has been showing us that Christ is the supreme good in all the universe and that our fullness is found in relationship with the full one. This morning we will look at the practical work we are to undertake as we, the church, find our fullness in Christ and walk in a manner worthy of him. As I read this text, will you look for three things? Something we are to put on, something we are to put in, and something we are to put our lives under. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what joy it brings us to be reminded that you, that you have chosen us. We are your chosen ones, holy and beloved by you. May we engage our minds and hearts into this passage. May we know more fully the life you have given us in Christ. May we embrace it and walk in it, we pray. Amen. Imagine two neighboring towns, one that freely exhibited all the vices from last week's text. Remember, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetedness, which is idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. That's one town. And the other town exhibited the virtues from the text we just read. Holiness, compassion, kindness, Humility, meekness, patience, love, peace, harmony, and thankfulness. Now, which town would you prefer to live in? And don't be so quick to say the second town. See, if you were to move there, you could no longer hang on to all your resentments. You could no longer play the victim. You could no longer entertain your lusts. You could no longer prioritize your happiness over another's. It would mean that you would have to care for others more than you do yourself. It would mean you'd jump out of bed with a higher purpose to live for each day, other than your petty dreams of comfort and solitude. Let us not be so quick to think we'd really long to live in the second town, but we should. It is what human beings were made for before sin entered the world. In our passage, Paul says it's time to pack up and move. 
In verse 12, he states, we are now God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is who God has made us to be. This is who we are now. This is our new identity. We are new creatures in Christ. So then let us live, let us walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, holy and pleasing unto him. In our passage, there are three key commands for us. We are to put on, put in, and put under. These commands unlock for us just how we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, the big idea for today, the main point today is this. Because Christ has made us new creations, we are to live as new creations. We will divide our time under these three headings. Because we are new creations in Christ, we must put on, we must put in, and we must put under. First, the call to put on is in verses 12 through 14. Have you ever gotten your clothes so disgustingly dirty that instead of washing them, you threw them out? Well, I have. <laughs> it's a regular occurrence in our house. We have a chocolate Labrador named Gus who has a fetish for eating socks and panties. Uh, then he pukes them out like a day later. And, and we've, we used to try to wash them, but they, they just never turn out the same, as you can imagine. Um, so now in our laundry room, we have this huge bin of single socks that have lost their partner. Last week, Paul gave us a dirty laundry list of the garment of sin that we're to strip off and throw away. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetedness, which is idolatry. And then remember, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. This week, he describes what we are to put on. The Greek word translated put on is used often in ancient writings to speak of getting dressed or to clothe oneself, to get some garments out of closet and put them on. And so Paul describes the Christian life as a wardrobe change. Put off the old filthy garments of the flesh, something you should just throw out, it's that bad, and put on the glorious garments of your new life in Christ. Now, I know you recall what it feels like when you put on a fashionable new dress or a suit. How does it feel? Good, right? Joyful, delightful. And you cannot wear it out. You, can't, you can't, cannot wait to go wear it out someday. We should have the same feeling when we put on the garments of godliness that God gives us. The clothes we are to put on are essentially qualities that are found perfectly in Christ. The clean clothes we are to eagerly put on is the behavior of the new creation. In verses 12 and 13, Paul lists the first five Christ-like characteristics that we are to put on. He writes, put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. As with last week's lists, notice these are not five separate things. They flow in and out of one another. They are connected. They are principles that if you have one in you the others naturally flow and to forego one is to undermine the integrity of the others so paul says put on first we're to put on compassionate hearts 
There's a story about Jesus that, that whenever I read it, I'm amazed at, at the compassion of our Savior. In, in Matthew chapter 14, when Jesus got the news that John the Baptist had been beheaded, he got into a boat to go far away to a desolate place to pray, to have a quiet time. But the, the crowds heard where he went to, and, and over 5,000 went to interrupt Jesus' personal quiet time. Now, how would you respond when you're trying to get some R&R and crowds press in on you? Well, Jesus did not act that way. Matthew 14, verse 14, we read, He, Jesus, saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And oh, by the way, then he fed all 5,000 of them. Jesus felt compassion for them, and so he denies himself, and he cares for them. Now, imagine what would have happened if instead Jesus would have said, you know, leave me alone. I'm having my quiet time. Thank you. Come back later. But our Lord is compassionate. And we are new creations in him, so we too are to have compassionate hearts. Next is kindness. Kindness flows from a heart of compassion. Every one of us, I know, has experienced kindness before. We know what it looks like. Kindness is compassion on its knees, trying to get close to someone and to look them in the eyes. Humility is the third aspect, the third garment of godliness that we are to put on. Humility is a quality that if you think you have it, well, you don't. As Rick Warren stated, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is like, think of it, it's like soft, rich, freshly tilled soil in which the fruit of the Spirit is able to grow. My friends, humility, it is essential for the Christian life. Next is meekness. Uh, this one goes out to my buddy Greg DeVault. Um, the boisterous basketball coach Bobby Knight uh, from my alma mater, Indiana University, once said, check this out, he said, the meek may well inherit the earth, but they rarely get rebounds. <laughs> right, I know that's funny. Uh, this funny comment, though, uh, it reveals a prevalent misconception of meekness. Remember the definition of meekness? I know it's been a few years since we looked at, at the Sermon on the Mount, but meekness is not weakness. Meekness is what? It's, it is power, but under control. The word is used in ancient Greek, language to describe a wild horse that has been tamed and is now suitable for peaceful and productive labors. A meek man or woman is in control. They have the power to take, but their strength is under control, the control of the Holy Spirit. Fifth on the list is patience. Paul equates patience with the outward action of bearing with one another. Patience refrains from exacting revenge and is willing to endure wrong. It's the opposite of malice from last week. And isn't patience one of the most exquisite qualities in our Lord? Imagine if Jesus lacked patience for his disciples. He'd be constantly barking at them. John, what has taken you so long? Peter, stop being such a cocky fool. Thomas, you should have believed when the others told you I rose from the dead. Keep your fingers away from my side. Move to the back of the line. 
But no, our Lord was full of patience towards those ancient disciples. And guess what? He is full of patience with you and me. Therefore, let us reflect that, that, that same patience with one another. Now, after describing what to put on, Paul describes two outcomes for us when we put on the garment of Christ-likeness. We see them in verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We become those who bear with one another and those who forgive one another. They're related, but slightly different. Have you ever taken one of those personality tests? There's a lot of them out there. I find them extremely helpful in a number of ways, and one is in creating a work environment where coworkers are better able to bear with one another. You see, I, in the Myers-Briggs test, I am an ESTJ. That's just how God wired me. One year, um, I had three people on my staff take this test as well, and guess what? They were all the polar opposite of me. They were ENFPs. Now, whereas ESTJs are wired for productivity, ENFPs are wired for, well, daydreaming at Starbucks. Okay, I'm exaggerating, but just a little bit. But check this out. Studying how we've been uniquely wired by God allowed us to bear with one another, our differences and things. And more than that, to appreciate our differences and to use them uh, for the greater good. And oh, by the way, yeah, my wife is an ENFP as well. <laughs> um, by necessity, we must be a people who bear with one another. We all come with our own personalities and passions and dreams. Others can rub us the wrong, wrong way, and guess what? We rub others the wrong way. It's not necessarily sin. We're just wired differently. This is God's doing. The body of Christ must be diverse and therefore it must bear with one another in love. The other outcome of putting on Christ is that we become forgiving people. It's a special kind of forgiveness, not the kind that, that boys on the playground express. How many times have you seen a six-year-old boy, six-year-old boys get into a scuffle on the play, playground, and, and a parent breaks them up and says, now, I want you to forgive each other. And then she gets the kids together, and they, she says, now, say you're sorry. And then the kids sheepishly look down at the ground, um, and, and they half-heartedly shake hands, and they mumble, I'm sorry. You've seen that before. Well, that's not the picture here. Our forgiving is to be like whose? Christ, our Lord. So Paul says, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Christian author Neil Anderson writes this, listen. Most of the ground that Satan gains in the lives of Christians is due to unforgiveness. It's true. And it isn't hard to figure out why. Once we realize that unforgiveness breeds bitterness, resentment, anger, unkindness, even despair, then we get to see how prevalent 
unforgiveness is and the damage it causes. Do you see unforgiveness in you? And do you see how it breeds all other kinds of filth in your life? And isn't it odd? It, it, it's just odd that, that for some reason we want to hang on to our bitterness. But listen, what we must see is that if we are not able to forgive, then we not only suffer externally from the ongoing disintegration of that relationship, but we must also see that inside we also suffer from ongoing disintegration. And, and we want to blame the other person for our inner bitterness and anger. But understand this, please. If you fail to forgive, the bitterness and resentment is on you. You cannot blame it on the other guy. But you say, there's no way I can forgive her or forgive him. You don't know how badly they treated me. Well, my friend, then you don't know the forgiveness of the Lord. See, I know this might sound, sound hard, but God has given you, listen, God has given you every reason and every resource for you to delight in forgiving that person. And so if you persist in unforgiveness, then the blame and the burden lands on you and you alone. And so, look to Christ. See the cost he gladly spent to forgive you. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you are to forgive others. He gave his life to forgive you. Should you not then give your life in forgiveness of others? My friends, Christ's forgiveness has opened up for you the door to forgiving others. Now, will you walk through it? Or will you choose to hold tight to your bitterness? So do you see why forgiveness is so critical to our lives? If we choose to hold on to our right to be bitter, we suffer a hundred times more pain than the original offense inflicted. Every time that person comes to mind, the pain multiplies. But when we put off the filthy clothes of our earthly lives in the flesh and put on the clean, satisfying clothes that Christ give us, gives us, then we become people who bear with one another and also forgive one another like Christ has forgiven us. And so it's no wonder that Paul ends with something else to put on in verse 14. He says, above all these, what? Put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. One commentator says that love is like a belt around the outer garment that holds all the garments together. My friends, as Jesus said in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's what God has given us. That's the extent of his love. It's a forgiving love. My friends, we are new creations in Christ, so let us put off the old and put on the new. And let us remember that this is not a once-and-done event. I wish that were true, but this is a daily waking up and drawing near to the cross of Christ and being reminded of who we now are and how much we need the power of the Holy Spirit to daily put off the old filthy clothes of our past life and put on 
Christ. That is the put on. Now for our next point, which is put in. What are we to put in? Paul says it's the peace of Christ. Paul's point is that when the peace of Christ is put in, then we live in peace with others in the body of Christ. And the evidence of this, that it's taking place, is what? Thankfulness. It's all throughout the rest of our passage. Look again at Colossians 3, verses 15 through 16. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What does Paul mean by the peace of Christ? Well, he earlier stated in chapter 1 that, that Christ made peace by the blood of his cross. That is to say, he removed the hostility between God and sinners by absorbing it in himself on the cross. But Paul is getting at something more. Then there's this peace which Jesus had in view in John chapter 14, verse 27, when he reassured his disciples with this promise. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. This is the peace that characterizes Christ himself, a peace that he in turn graciously imparts to his people. But Paul is getting at more in our passage. Paul, Paul is addressing a kind of peace from Christ that is experienced in his body, the church. Look at how he refers to the body in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. Clearly then, Paul is saying that, that in making decisions in the body of Christ, we must give consideration in our hearts to what will preserve and promote the peace that Christ died to achieve. Sam Storms writes, This is reinforced, I believe, by the word Paul uses that is here translated rule. It's found only here in the New Testament. This word was used to describe the re responsibility of an umpire in athletic games who directed the competition and rendered decisions concerning the winners in, in each contest. He also awarded the competitors their prizes. Now, the word rule would later come, uh, came to have, a, have more general meaning of to arbitrate or give a verdict or preside or control or to rule and hold sway. Thus, contrary to the, the way many of us have used this passage in the past, Paul is not telling us to make personal decisions in our individual lives based on whether or not we feel peace in our hearts. This may well be legitimate in another context, but, but it is not what Paul is addressing here. This, then, is Paul's point. A decisive factor in how you should conduct yourselves in relation uh, to one another is whether or not the peace that Christ died to achieve and impart is preserved and promoted in the body of Christ. When you're faced with tensions and potentially divisive decisions within the community of faith, give strong consideration to what will most effectively sustain the peace of Christ. In other words, are you so sure you want to argue over the color of the carpet? Or you really want to argue over 
Which missionary should get how much funds? Let's promote the peace of Christ. The, uh, the Apostle Paul said much the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, where, where he called Christians to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's an obvious urgency in Paul's exhortation. Be eager. That is to say, spare no effort. Make it a priority. Be urgent about it. Make haste. Peace also has a bonding effect. It is that which enables us to get along and support and sustain one another. Thus, the bond of peace is the means by which we demonstrate to the world that unity which the Spirit has created among us. What a beautiful thing. This unity already exists by virtue of what the Spirit has done in us. But Paul is saying we must diligently be committed, diligently to preserving it. And listen, where the peace of Christ is manifest, there is thanksgiving. Verse 15 um, ends with, and be thankful. It should not strike us as odd that we must, or it should rather, I mean, strike us as odd that we must be commanded to be thankful. God has to command us. Paul has to command us to be thankful. Why is that? I think it's because we're so prone to worry. We're anxious. We're fighting over the color of the new pew Bibles. We forget we, we have so much to be thankful for. And when we let the peace of Christ to be put in us, our, our thankfulness drives away any feeling of lack. As we let Christ's words, the Holy Scriptures he has given us, dwell in us richly, let us delight to teach and to learn and be shaped by the Word of God. And what tends to happen when the Word of God shapes us? We sing. And how do we sing? With thankfulness in your hearts to God. And how could we not be thankful? It is God himself, the Holy Spirit, that puts the peace of Christ and the words of Christ into our midst. And so it delights us when God is at work in our church body, right? And so, yes, we are a thankful people. My friends, we have a calling to put in, to put in us the peace of Christ as we live together as the church. This happens when we meditate and study together the words of Christ and respond with joyful praise in the, in the singing of songs, all undergirded and motivated by our thankfulness to God. Grace Church, may this become more and more of a reality in us. So we're to put on Christ's likeness, to put off the old filthy nature and put on garments of godliness. And we're to put in us the, the peace of Christ and let it rule in our lives together. Lastly, we are to put our lives under Christ, our Lord. Some Christians are really good at compartmentalizing their faith. How about you? <laughs> That is, they, they pick and choose where and when to live out their Christian values. They divide their lives into the sacred and the secular. And so the sacred is things like Sunday mornings and devotional time or Bible studies during the week. 
But then everything else is secular. Work, play, entertaining, shopping, sex, travel. But Paul won't have it. And neither should we. As far as he is concerned, there is no such thing as secular space. There is no event, activity, endeavor, or goal that is exempt from the lordship of Jesus Christ. If you doubt this, consider the the comprehensive, all-encompassing, universal scope of Paul's language in verse 17. He writes, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He said virtually the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Note carefully the language he employs, word or deed, eat or drink. These are what we call spectrum terms, which is to say they are designed to be all-inclusive of every other conceivable option. They cover the spectrum. One cannot say in response to to Colossians 3.17, well, there are some things in my life that are technically neither words that I speak nor deeds that I perform. No, by words or deed, Paul is spanning the spectrum of all possible activities, whether they be physical, mental, spiritual, vocal, or whatever. Likewise, with eat and drink, one cannot say, well, I'm happy to eat and drink to the glory of God, always diligent to give thanks for my meal that he provides, but my sex life and in my career, my hobbies, are something else altogether. No, by eating and drinking, Paul means all human endeavors, all human experiences, no exceptions allowed. Some folks, don't, some folks don't like that. They want to hold back something for themselves. They want to lay hold of money or power or certain pursuits that they conceive of as outside the dominion and lordship of Jesus, something over which they exercise independent and autonomous authority. My friends, Paul refuses to compartmentalize Christian discipleship by restricting the lordship of Jesus to something so obviously spiritual in nature, like singing songs or giving thanks at mealtime. Note again, whatever you do, do all in the name of Jesus. There are, there's no exceptions. End of argument. My friends, this, this might seem hard, but it's also so good. See, this means that Jesus is Lord over every breath, every thought, every decision, every action you and I ever have. I was practicing this this week, and as I answered the phone, I said in my head, I'm answering this phone in a way that honors my Lord. And check this out. When I called the cable company with a problem, I determined that I would speak to the technical representative with the respect and kindness that my Lord Jesus would speak to him. And my friends, it was refreshing. See, when we consciously live every moment under the loving rule and authority of Jesus, it is not cumbersome and stifling. It's liberating. It feels good. It it feels like how life really ought to be. And it causes us to be, once again, thankful. My friends, Jesus really is Lord. As Paul showed us earlier in the letter, Jesus is God Almighty, who took on flesh 
and died for us and rose from the grave. And he's now seated in heaven in authority. He's ruling and he's reigning from heaven. And we, thankfully now, belong to him. He watches over us. He cares for us. He leads us. And he calls us to radiate the goodness and love of God in everything we do. So my friends, let us ask ourselves, do I tend to separate my life into the sacred versus secular? Can I now see that all of my life, every breath, every thought, every action, no matter how small, is to be done in allegiance to Christ and for his glory with a heart of thankfulness? Let us seek this out in our lives. Let us put our lives under the rule and reign of Christ. It is there at his throne that our lives find their fullness. I really hope you believe that. This morning, we have seen that because we are new creations in Christ, we must put on Christ. We must put in us the peace of Christ. And we must put our lives under the rule and authority of Christ. But if we're honest, it is hard As weird as it may sound, we often lack the motivation to put off the filthy old stinky putrid clothes of our past lives and and put on, on the new. Let alone be at peace and do everything in the name of the Lord. It's just hard. So so let me let me just wrap up with our motivation from our text. And our motivation isn't be good little Christians and do what's right, and then God will reward you. No. We see our motivation in verse 1. We read that that we are already um, enjoying these great rewards. It's nothing that we have earned. God has gifted us. Look at this beginning of the passage. Colossians 3.12 Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Listen, this is so beautiful. If you have come to faith in Christ, it is only because God has first chosen you. I know some Christians don't like this doctrine, but but God does, and so should we. Think this through. If you are a Christian, a child of God, a member of the body of Christ, it was God's idea. He made it happen. It is God's will that you would be his child. Listen, this means he picked you. And he did not pick you because he knew you would pick him. He picked you knowing you never would have picked him unless he first picked you. And of course, God didn't pick you because you were better than other people. Hopefully, you've got enough humility to know that. You aren't better than other people, but God chose you anyway. And so listen, this means what? That God desires you. He wants you. You are his child. And it is he who did everything for you to make it so that you would see your need for God and want Christ. My friends, this is such good news. It means that no one could ever, ever desire you more than God. God, the creator of the universe, has brought you into his family of chosen ones. Is that not enough motivation? But Paul goes on, he writes, we are his Beloved, what a great word. Listen, Christian, God is your Father in heaven. When he looks down on you, he sees you with eyes of love. You're his beloved. 
unlike me with my kids and how I tend to roll my eyes at them or make them feel like they have to earn my love. Shame on me. Shame on me when I do that. God is not that kind of father. He is our heavenly father, and we are his beloved. Paul also says we are what? Holy. Don't, let, don't get freaked out by that word. Holy literally means to be set apart by God. He has set you apart. And all of this together means that, that we have the greatest of all motivations. When God's grace is magnified in our hearts, we come alive in thankfulness, and we desire to walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord. That, my friends, is our motivation. Let's meditate upon this this week. We gladly put on, put in, and put under because we are now God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Let's pray. We thank you, Jesus, for giving us new life. We delight that we really are new creations. The old is gone. Behold the new. And this means everything for us. And it means everything for you. You love us and you know what is good and right and enjoyable. Today we affirm what you affirm and we commit to follow after you and in thankfulness do everything in your name as we give thanks to our Father in heaven. Amen.